This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. The premiere of the latest season of the President Donald Trump show got underway in dramatic fashion this week with his latest State of the Union address. The former reality television personality, you may remember him from The Apprentice and the last four years, made over the speech with made-for-TV moments. He began it with a snub of the House Speaker, peppered it with goodies for his conservative allies, and returned again and again to the culture wars that have fueled his presidency. With us today on Political Theater to discuss this political spectacle is Alyssa Rosenberg, who writes about culture and politics for The Washington Post. Alyssa, welcome to Political Theater. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, yeah, let's talk about this. I mean, you you were uh, you were nice enough to write a column on it uh, for The Post. Uh, probably, I'm guessing you're, you're uh, fueled by uh, not that much sleep uh, after putting together uh, the, the, this column. So let's, much caffeine. Yeah, but it, it really gets to not just what we want to talk about today, but really what I think this uh, podcast really does. Like, we try to get that. We try to arrive at, like, how culture and politics interact, how one influences the other. And with Trump, we have this great, you know, sort of case study over the last few few years. Um, let's let let's start it off at the at the top. I mean, just right right as he came in, Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. We are we we, are, we see this almost you know, wrestling or heavyweight boxing, like sort of snub, you know, uh, where he refuses to shake the hand of Nancy Pelosi. Some of my colleagues thought that was a little bit more ambiguous than I think some of us read it at home. But yeah, I mean, look, the thing about Trump is that he is a brilliant entertainer and he is not merely sort of a reality television star. He can toggle between different modes of performance and different modes of storytelling. And we saw an enormous amount of that last night, right? I mean, he, you know, comes in, he has the sort of big entrance. I mean, he's been on, um, like, on WWE. I can do whatever the hell I want. He's he's in the WWE Hall of Fame. Yes. <laughs> he is a wrestler, um, uh, has hosted WrestleManias. You know, he comes in and that sort of, you know, has the dramatic entrance into the ring. Um, and he really manages to own that in a way that not all presidents do. It's hard to look dramatic walking down an aisle and onto a podium, but... He does it. Um, Especially when you have members just sort of like reaching out to get a touch, just to, to get any kind of, I mean, all presidents do this, that people line up so they can shake hands. But there was a, there's just not like a little extra level of fanboyism going on last night. And he night. also, you know, to a certain extent, he indulges some of that, but he's a little withholding and remote. Um, and, you know, kind of, and he's a big guy and uses that physicality really well in moments like this. He sort of draws himself up. He's, you know looms over the crowd a little bit. Um, there's something sort of imperious, almost imperial about, you know, that constant upward tilts of the head. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, yeah, he starts off in, you know, sort of WWE mode and then quickly shifts into being what I sort of refer to as a reactionary Oprah Winfrey, right? It's like you get a scholarship to go to a, you know, higher performing school than the public school that you're zoned for. An opportunity scholarship has become available. It's going to you. You get a brigadier generalship. And earlier today, I pinned the stars on his shoulders in the Oval Office. General McGee 
Our nation salutes you. Thank you, sir. You get your husband home from Afghanistan. <laughs> you get, yeah, and and with the the sort of the big reveal, which was sort of late in the in yeah. development, was you get the Presidential Medal of Freedom, Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> right, Rush Limbaugh. You know, this week had revealed that he has advanced uh, uh, lung cancer. Uh, un- unclear, you know, how much he may have to live. I mean, he's been a fixture on talk radio and conservative circles for years, and not. I mean, usually there's this sort of you know, ceremony at the White House where it's everybody's like a little awkward and they play a little bit of, you know, I don't know, some John S- Philip Sousa or something, <laughs> you know. And this was like, the, the, as you said, it's like this Oprah moment, you know, like the, the first Look lady. Look under sort your of, seats. Right, exactly. Like the first lady sort of turns to Rush Limbaugh and, you know, it's almost like a fraternity pinning or something. You know? Exactly. I mean, he, just, he just gets the medal right there. And, you know, it just, it was, uh, again, made made for TV. Rush Limbaugh, thank you for your decades of tireless devotion to our country. I am proud to announce tonight that you will be receiving our country's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And part of what's interesting about that is it's not just the sort of, you know, Oprahization, the morning talk show, military family reunion type of thing, but Trump, and this is sort of an underrated a part of his appeal, I think, he is extraordinarily good at manufacturing kitsch, mm-hmm. um, you know, hugging the American flag, sort of, you know, the embrace of the, like all the sort of cheesy Americana, the obsession with the military. And so what's powerful about the Limbaugh moment in particular is not just that it's reality television, but that it's kitsch, right? You take this person who, I mean, think of the f- Rush Limbaugh is a vicious bigot, um, and you turn him into the highest, you know, ideals of America and this sort of fuzzy grandpa is tearing up. And I'm sure it's a legitimately meaningful moment for him. But part of what's powerful about it as performance is that it renders things sort of schmaltzy and cheesy. I mean, the closing of that speech with the invocation of, you know, kids watching Wyatt Earp, America's the canvas, we can do whatever we want is, I mean, it's... I mean, I would say it's like a Bob Ross painting, but that's a, an, an insult to Bob Ross. Um, well, Bob Ross with guns. Yeah. You know, if, if, if you're talking about Wyatt Earp and, and, and the Second Amendment and, and so forth. Absolutely. And I mean, there's this sort of weird subgenre of kitschy, like faux heroic Trump art where he's sort of painted into historical tableaus. He's, right. you know. With, crossing with, the Delaware with, with Washington. With an M60, you know, and, and bandoliers of ammunition and, and so forth. Exactly. Owning the libs. And that, you know. Maybe an eagle screaming in the background. Exactly. And that's not, it's not just something that his followers have sort of come up and come up with and fallen for. It's something that he sort of actively manufactures himself. Um, and, you know, he's just very gifted at that. And so, you know, People think of Trump and his supporters that they like him because he sort of gives them permission to feel bad and be bad. But the kitsch element of his appeal gives people a way to feel good, too. And I think that that is something that observers, Democrats in particular, tend to sort of undervalue at their own risk. It's very, you know, I don't think that Democratic politicians have contempt for Trump's voters in the sense that that's traditionally talked about, right? I mean, I think that people who want to to expand Medicare access, for example, like care about the material needs of poor Americans, whatever their politics are. But where I do think that there is an argument to be made is that I think that – and I'm going to put this in 
huge air quotes, sort of elites have a sort of cultural contempt for the cultural preferences of a lot of people who like Donald Trump. Like liking professional wrestling is considered sort of cheesy. Um, Liking kitsch and Americana and snuggling the American flag are sort of cheesy and embarrassing. It's the equivalent of people who watch a lot of HBO being like, why does anyone watch The Big Bang Theory? Right. but the thing is, more people watch The Big Bang Theory than watch Game of Thrones. Right. You know, there, this stuff does have a genuine appeal and you don't have to like it, but you do have to understand that it has a distinct cultural power and that people who can communicate that way reach an audience that you are not necessarily going to reach with a, you know, tits and dragons show right. or with, you know, some sort of like serious reflection on American problems. That doesn't mean that the serious reflection on American problems shouldn't exist. Like, we need the wire as well as the Big Bang Theory. But you have to recognize where the audience actually is, and he understands that in a really powerful way. And it's not, this is not new either. Because, I mean, when you think about, you know, television shows, I mean, like, one of the great, like, sort of, um, sort of conflicts where that where you see this in the in the the heyday of television of, of network television is with the Beverly Hillbillies, yep. right? I mean the Beverly Hillbillies were an incredibly popular show. They were canceled like almost at the height of their popularity because you know people just didn't get it. Why aren't more people watching I Spy? You yep. know, which has like a black man and a white man working together to solve the world's problems and, and, it's, and it's playing clever, tennis and looking great together. The right. clothes are good. Right. Yeah. And and that I feel like that um that level of sort of, I mean, I guess it is a conflict. I mean, like that that has always been there, and Trump has been able to use it in a way that is perhaps more overt. But we we see the same thing with Ronald Reagan. We see the same thing with any president appealing to patriotic, you know, sort of tropes. Right? It's just that Trump is just way more over the top with it. Right. Exactly. I mean, I keep coming back to that image of him hugging the American flag with that smirk on his face because. On one level, it's so patently silly, but it does resonate with people. Um, I think it's really challenging. I think one of the things that Trump has done, look, nobody has a right to have universal validation of their taste, right? I mean, if you said that, I mean, what's your favorite TV show? Uh, The thing that affected me the most the the last year is that I finally watched Twin Peaks The Return, you know, which is about is like, abstract and phantasmagoric and weird as you can possibly get. I mean, I had trouble following it at certain times. And like, I have a master's degree in literature and creative (laughs) writing. I mean, that's right up my alley. I realize that that's not going to be like everybody's cup of tea. But you would never suggest that if someone didn't like Twin Peaks, that they were, you know, sort of expressing a judgment view that was immoral. And so what Trump has done is very cleverly exploited I think this development in both our culture and our politics where cultural affinity becomes an important marker of of identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think this happens across the political spectrum. People line up with DC or Marvel. They identify with the TV shows that they watch, et cetera. And so he has kind of weaponized and intensified the conversations around fandom. He is the ultimate franchise, right? right? And so... You know, he has intensified this merger of our culture and politics um, in part because his entire presidency is a performance. I mean, he is almost a one man television network, right? I mean, he can do the reality show stuff. He can do the kitsch. And then for your 
you know, law and order loving, fox watching grandma, he will sit down and tell a bunch of really horrifying, gory stories about crimes committed by undocumented people. So, I mean, the fact that it's like court TV, watching court TV or something. But the fact that he can toggle between these programming modes, you know, it is a really effective form of code switching. And he doesn't necessarily have the discipline to maintain it on a consistent basis. But when he can do it for an hour and a half, two hours, you know, underestimate that at your peril. This this is something that Democrats need to pay attention to because it's not just that he was able to be sort of disciplined and, and create this persona, which, you know, and we'll get we'll get a little bit. Into, I want to get a little bit yeah. into The Apprentice and how he built that into like his, his persona and his brand. But he also took some of their signature um, issues and 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 is like saying like these are conservative issues because they're optimistic issues. I mean like there there was this moment. I mean I, and I I you know I, I thought immediately in, in in this sort of pop culture mode too where he's talking about like wanting to um, you know further parental leave. You know this, this is something that any parent would be like yes absolutely you know that would be awesome. And Ann Wagner, a Republican uh, Congresswoman, you know she stood up and and said yes yes. And immediately I thought like okay that one that's sort of you know, a, a very democratic issue, even though it's Ivanka's issue in the White House and she's been pushing it with several Republicans. But also it just reminded me of the Meg Ryan moment in when Harry met Sally. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed almost kind of like I mean, I'm, I, I don't, don't know that I'd go that far, but uh, <laughs> it's yeah. just this is like manufactured moment. you know. No, of, and you know. I think that I mean, look. If you look at the first half of the speech, he employed what I would call, again, sort of in air quotes, diversity casting really strategically, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, all of the people that he was calling out by name earlier in the speech and in some cases to him he was like explicitly giving things were people of color. General McGee. And the administration has been thinking and talking a lot about how Trump could capture more of the African-American vote in 2020. I don't know if that will actually happen, but, you know, who... You are churlish if you object to a former Tuskegee Airman like showing up and getting those Brigadier General stars, right? right? I mean, it's this very effective trap because if you object to the showmanship, you could easily be seen as sort of being sour about these people getting things they need, experiences they want, et cetera. It's very hard to ask someone who's trying to get their kid to a better school to say, no, don't pursue that. Or, you know, someone who served in, you know, a segregated military <laughs> say like you should be honored in this way. I mean, you, it's 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 incredibly smart. I mean, I don't know that there is anyone in the Democratic Party who right now who is a, that gifted a communicator. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like I get the Bernie Sanders shtick, but it is whatever you think of it, it is not nearly as versatile a method of communication uh, as Trump is able to employ. And this, I mean, so much of this was built with his own, I mean, he realized that, you know, after basically the, his real estate career, you know, had no. had sort of imploded in the 90s and he went through multiple bankruptcies and and so forth that, I mean, he realized that he was going to get ahead by being a brand. Yep. And so he licensed his name uh, to to different products, whether it was vodka or steaks or ties. Uh, and then the, the Apprentice came along and, you know, sort of sadly, we cannot see The Apprentice, like unless you own the DVDs, <laughs> uh, but it does show this. I mean, you know, right off the bat, you know, he he like swoops in on a helicopter, you know, that says Trump. It's to the OJs for the love of money song. I mean, like it's it's all right there. The, the blueprint of his appeal 
But it actually goes back kind of right there. But it actually goes back even earlier than that. Right. I mean, Trump was constantly showing up in cameos. as this sort of symbol of New York, you know, and Kevin McAllister gets lost in Home Alone. Excuse me. Where's the lobby? Who does he ask for directions? Down the hall and to the left. Thanks. Donald Trump, you know, in this glitzy hotel, um, it's the sort of. You know, he has the, become the plaza, which uh, at that point he he owned, he owned the plaza um, hotel. Yeah, right, right exactly. at uh, Central Park. And so he becomes this sort of avatar of not just, you know, excess and consumption, but this certain idea of New York. I mean, there's an episode of Sex in the City where Samantha, one of the uh, four main characters, is having drink drinks in a bar and spots Trump. And, you know, it's like the line is something like, you know, Samantha, a cosmopolitan and Donald Trump. You just don't get more New York than that. Listen, Ed, I've got to go. Um, and she ends up, you know, dating a little bit this sort of older guy who, and you know he's wealthy because he's having drinks with Trump at the same bar. They're doing a deal. Um, and so, you know, The Apprentice is sort of the apotheosis of that. But Trump had been sort of cultural shorthand for years before that. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, The Apprentice is Basically, you know, the postmodern philosophers, Baudrillard's, you know, simulacra and simulation, right? At a certain point, if you create a convincing enough facade and facsimile, people will stop looking to be sure that there's anything underneath. The, you know, the um, replica will have entirely replaced the real thing. And so it doesn't actually matter how much money Donald Trump has or, you know, how many hotels he actually successfully operates. Um, this or, is what or, people think he is. Right. Yeah. And that is that's literally everything. People think he's good at business. Um, and it's very hard to fight back against that with facts. If you saw it on TV, it's real. And isn't the irony here, too, that this is what every politician tries to do. Every politician does try to present themselves as either this defender of the Constitution or a crusader for poor people or whatever. I mean, like nobody is actually just all that. They right. have, they have interior lives. Yep. They're they're part of a family or they're part of a, a a tribe or they're part of a race or whatever. And and they but they're just not as good at projecting. They're not as good as building up that brand or that persona as Trump is. Well, and, and there's long been this assumption in American politics that. What you have to – I mean, look, if you run for president of the United States, you are almost definitionally abnormal, right? Yes, yes. (laughs) You know, if you believe that you should be the most powerful person in the world, you're a little bit nuts. Um, But there has been this persistent belief that what politicians have to do is get elected is to appear normal, right? It's why Amy Klobuchar, like, distributes her hot dish recipe and talks about her, I think, uncle's deer stand or whatever. It's why – Obama, like, pretends to drink beer when you know he's more of a wine guy on, like, shoots hoops. It's why, you know, Bill Clinton is, like, running around in tracksuits in the 90s. Um, And part of Trump's appeal is that he saw that people didn't want that at all, right? I mean, they want the president to be better than them, but not in a way that makes them feel bad about themselves or makes them feel judged. Um, And so, you know, he is... I don't know that Donald Trump has that much of an interior life, right? I mean, I think we kind of see it all on Twitter. Um, But he, yeah, again, he's just sort of this genius for understanding that if you present the appearance, then you get all the benefits of the substance along the way. So. As we as we look forward, I mean, we've got a long uh, campaign season in front of us. I mean, a lot of it will 
I mean, it, it's going to go a couple different twists, you know, like any good like show, right? I mean, is this the kind of thing that you think people will, you know, like want to keep watching? <laughs> Are we going to, is it just going to be so compelling that they'll, they'll want another season? They'll want to renew, you know, the, the presidency, the apprentice presidency. I mean, I like, like you, I feel a little exhausted, but I know not, that's not how everybody feels. I mean, some people are, as you said, they're really jazzed by this. Yeah. And I think, you know, the economy is basically in a pretty good place. We, we have the luxury of fighting. Yeah. We did not actually end up going to a war with Iran for now. Um, (laughs) That's a knock on Formica for the listeners. Yes. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I mean, I also think it's worth acknowledging there are people who are really obsessed with this and into it. There are people like us who follow it for a living and are, you know, aging visibly as it happens. Ah, that's me, not you. Um, Oh, I'm, I'm, believe me, I'm (laughs) like, it's hard to get it out of my head on a daily basis. But most Americans don't have the bandwidth to pay an enormous amount of attention to politics, right? It's, uh, it's not the most narcotic entertainment available to them. They do not have desk jobs where they can have Twitter open in a second window. Um, And so, you know, if I had to put money on it today, I think President Trump will probably get reelected. But I think there will be a lot of factors that contribute to that. That said, I really think Democrats underestimate his ability as a performer at their peril. Um, when he's good, he's really good. Alyssa Rosenberg, thank you so much for talking through this with the political theater. Uh, I would encourage people to read your column today, which goes into this in a, in a little more depth. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Political Theater. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Playlist, whatever, wherever you get it. I mean, ask your smart refrigerator or whatever <laughs> for, for the, for, uh, to, to subscribe to Political Theater. And we will catch you next time. The borderline of doom I'm facing. The edge of reality. Political Theater is produced by CQ Roll Call, leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.